Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello again, my little lovelies, and welcome to The Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Unz. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. Do you like when I use antiquated phrases like that? Tuning in. <laughs> Amazing. This week, I've got a very nice treat for you. And that treat is... Drumroll. My positively adorable chat with actor Tusita Jayasundra about her love for the 1977 disco-infused John Travolta-starring film Saturday Night Fever, the 1976 Spike Milligan-adapted reading of The Snow Goose, a novella by Paul Gallico, and... Susan Ray's 1971 recording of the song L.A. International Airport. Phew! So much stuff packed into one tiny episode. But it's all light and breezy and fun and you're gonna love it. That's a guarantee. Quick production note, this interview was done when I still had my shitty shitty cold, so my voice is a bit croaktastic. Sorry. Anyway. As you'll hear shortly, Tusita grew up in Sri Lanka, so her experience of these artworks came from a Sri Lankan perspective. Duh, right? But that got me thinking of all of the factors that shape our perception of artworks. Where you grew up, whether your parents were strict or liberal in their parenting, the year in which you were born, the person who introduced you to the artwork, the list is virtually infinite. And those innumerable factors will make your perception of an artwork very different to someone who is raised in a different part of the world or a different time period or whatever. Even if the conditions were identical, people are individuals. Taste is subjective. There's just no way that two people will ever have the same experience of an artwork, even if they generally agree with each other on its merits. Yes, all of this stuff is totally obvious, but those differing perspectives also provide an extremely vital part of this show. I know I'm always harping on about this. This, but the way we experience the art we love says a lot about who we are as people. I learn so much about my guests through their memories of engaging with their favorite artworks, but I also learn new things about the artworks that I've loved too, or at least experience them through a different lens. This is basically an advertisement for the show you're already listening to, right? But at the risk of preaching to the choir... <laughs> The things that distinguish us from one another, each of those individual differences provides an opportunity to experience art from a new perspective. And I think that's amazing. Maybe that's because I'm a bleeding heart, liberal, hippie, commie, pinko, and maybe it's because I've chosen to live in one of the most diverse parts of one of the most diverse cities on Earth. But that enormous range of diversity in the human experience never ceases to astound me. And I hope 
that this little show acts as a way to share that sense of wonder with all of you every week. Too soppy? Not soppy enough? Answers on a postcard, please. And now, I think we've had enough of my rambling nonsense for today, so let's scurry on over to my chat with Chusita Jayasundra about Saturday Night Fever, The Snow Goose, and LA International Airport. Why don't we start with Saturday Night Fever? <laughs> um, I don't know if I had actually ever seen it before i think <gasps> if if i had it has been a very very long time um, oh my goodness so i know the the shame <laughs> <laughs> well i'm i'm actually i should have i should have refreshed my memory about this because um it probably really is worth knowing when it was made because i think when you look at it you immediately think oh this especially now that you think, oh, this has got to be in the 70s. But of course, it could have been the early 80s, I think, when it was made. And it's it's just an incredible... I mean, the thing is, I was quite small when I saw it. I think I, I used to, um, as a child, be taken to sort of a lot of adults-only films because there weren't that many films around. So if you wanted to see something, um, my parents were quite sort of lax with things like that because it was so scarce and they sort of felt, well within reason it's better that they see something than nothing so we used to we used to go along and so i was i was quite little and quite impressionable and of course the the film was in so incredibly i mean the atmosphere in the film is just you could it's so it's so heavy and of course that when i mean heavy it's it's incredibly thick and evocative and very stirring because it's sort of new york it's new york and it's it's sort of mainly sort of i guess working class new york and it's about this guy called tony played by john travolta with these amazing sort of sensual sort of rubbery lips that, uh, that John Travolta has if you've never seen that before and you see it for the first time it's it's really quite something and um and he's very young in it and he plays this young Italian man who you know they're, they're incredibly stylish and has great pride in himself and the, the first uh, the opening sequence is very long and it's just John Travolta strutting down the street and all the way to to his, I mean, he's like a, he's like an emperor, he's like a king as he struts mm. down the street. And then you discover that he works in a paint shop, and you know he does he does quite a menial job. But there he is, all dressed up and looking a million dollars, and walking through the streets of New York, and you know acknowledging people. I mean, I, I certainly, I think it was probably the first shot of its kind. As a little girl growing up in Sri Lanka, I had never seen anything quite like that. That sort of real swagger and chutzpah. And it was just, you know, sort of a lovely kind of sparkling pride, which was brilliant to see. And then, and then of course, the whole disco sort of ethos, you know, because this, this guy, Tony's, you know, he used to live for going clubbing. And he and his friends used to go clubbing on a Saturday night. And I think that's what the Saturday night fever is about, getting ready on a Friday and doing this over the weekend. And the lights and the smoke and the kind of dance. I mean, it was just, it's very, very intoxicating. There is a story to it, obviously. It's quite a basic sort of story. It's, it's about a gang of young guns trying to make it past 
25, I think, without dying or getting mm-hmm. into... And one of them does, and it's quite a spectacular sort of death. And it's a very, very sort of New York kind of emblematic death as well, without giving too much... I mean, I don't know whether whether I'm being a spoiler since you haven't seen it, but... Oh, I, sorry. <clears throat> I have subsequently watched it. Oh, you have subsequently? Yeah, I, I right, right, right. I just, I don't know if I ever saw it, like... Uh, in my youth, I, I watched it in preparation for this. So oh I, yes, of course. I do. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and that too was, you know, that the combination of the sort of Bee Gees soundtrack and the cold sort of nights of New York, you know, by Brooklyn Bridge and stuff like that. All of that is so. I don't know. I found it was just deeply, deeply imprinted in my mind. And I have since visited New York several times for work and for holidays and stuff. And it's it's kind of really, it's amazing how much this seemed to have got into my bones, you know. It, it, um, and this is just the power of good film. So yeah, that's that's why that's on the list, because it's, it's really... It's really important. And the other thing that I will carry with me to, to my grave is them all sitting down at the table, Tony and his family, and having pasta with red sauce on it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and them sort of slurping these, um, this spaghetti with all this tomato sauce on it. Because, again, you see, t- to me, in Sri Lanka, what was that? You know, I mean, what the hell were they eating? I didn't really know that much about Italian food or certainly pasta. And there seemed something so incredibly glamorous about these bowls of noodles. So, yeah. Yeah. And having to protect his disco finery with a, a napkin tucked into his shirt so that he doesn't exactly. get, get exactly. splashes on it. Yeah. Yeah. He's so fastidious and so kind of into himself. It's just fabulous, isn't it? Because, yeah. 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 <laughs> I I think I had the impression just because the soundtrack is this enormous phenomenon. I think it's still the most successful film soundtrack of all time um in terms of that numbers of surprise copies yeah. sold. Yeah, like 50 55 million something like that. And in Gosh. my mind, I'd kind of associated it with movies like Flashdance or something where it was like a soundtrack in search of a film but there there really is a story there um in, in yeah. Saturday Night Fever and it's so much more involved and complex than I was expecting there's you know it's these young men trying to mi- make their way in the world but they're all yeah quite racist quite sexist quite homophobic they want to fight yeah. they're just like angry and ready yeah. to kind of lash out at people and that sort of juxtaposed with their love of going to these disco clubs and you know i know n- not in bay ridge um or, or i think they Bay Ridge is the neighborhood where they were, but, um, you know, this, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. small uh, neighborhood in Brooklyn where it's predominantly white, um, it, it wasn't that the people who had created the disco culture were, were necessarily there, but no, I found no. it kind of ironic that, you know, disco came from uh, black people, came from gay people, and the idea that these alpha male uh super prejudiced yes meatheads yeah. really love this music was uh yes. quite funny um <laughs> yes yeah yeah i mean I've, I've, as uh, again i suppose i i didn't have any sort of social context for any of this when i was watching it and mm. i knew they were sort of you know all i knew as a small child was that that you know they were they were a pretty sort of unpleasant bunch they weren't easy people mm-hmm. and they Apart from, I suppose there was a there was a kind of a hugely sort of peacocky element to to them all. There wasn't 
anything much else to recommend them. And then there was this life that they led where they, I don't know, transcended their circumstances. And somehow they were sort of special and they were constantly preparing to be special, you know. But they were also constantly turning into pumpkins in the morning sort of thing. It was, it was uh, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I, the ignorance which couched my viewing of the film, it's only subsequently that I have sort of, when I see it now, I kind of think of the things that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I just think of the kind of wide-eyed sort of um, way in which I watched it when I was, I don't know, I suppose I must have been about eight. Yeah. I, I did uh, do a little Googling while we've been speaking. It is yeah. 1977. Oh, right, right, so, right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But also what you just said about that contrast between the kind of mundane daytime life where he's working in this paint store and the flashy, exuberant nighttime life where he's the king of the dance floor, that even that only extends so far that it's this kind of ambitionless reign over the nighttime where he is really good at dancing and he's just focused on this one dance competition that you know it's in his world it's a big deal but in the grand scheme of things it's it's not a very big deal and other people around him are constantly saying like you should do something with your dancing and he just kind of shrugs it off and doesn't really have any he, he he's uh yeah, like I, I said, he's directionless. There's no, he doesn't really have any motivation to use the skills that he has to make something of his life. No, and, no. Uh, yeah, I found that really interesting too. It, it is, and it's, it's also it's also something that sort of John Travolta excels at mm. um, as an actor. That that feeling of, um, you know, on the one hand, he sort of seems extremely sort of cocky and petulant. He has, you know, and and and, uh, but but you know that there is a complete. It's a sort of a vulnerability and an emptiness, or a, or a lack a lack of real gumption, or a, which he's aware of. Do you know what I mean? There's a there's a sort of a there is a sort of a vulnerability to him, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's not vulnerability is not the right word. I know it isn't. It's just that he conveys that there is a sort of an outward sort of thrusting nature, but there is also this fully sort of apprehended vacancy inside you know mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and that in that way it's, it, it is it has a lot of depth I mean it not least because of where it's set and in what context it's set that there is this sort of the central character is is quite sort of blighted and is probably just gonna get shapeless and middle-aged and do you, do you know what I mean mm-hmm. that you 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 do sense that he's, he's not he's not headed anywhere fast is he I mean really right. yeah <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, I'm thinking I I don't I can't remember if I ever saw the sequel, but I think in the sequel, it kind of takes him in this direction where he actually does pursue a professional dancing career. And that seems kind of disingenuous to me. It felt like the the sequel was uh, the the plot of the sequel was like, let's make more money on the things that people loved about the first one. Yes, exactly. Um, Yeah. So let's let's ignore that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, let's let's stick with the first one. For the first one is inspired in its own right. I think it really is. Right. Uh, <laughs> and like like you were saying that um, I think his his performance is so brilliant in that it is there there is that hint of vulnerability underneath this cockiness, and also towards the end, you know, you're seeing these cracks in um, his friendships. And he's starting to kind of realize that there's maybe more to the world than just being, you know, crazy kid running around and causing havoc and going out at night. And 
is starting to see his friends as his friends' decisions as bad decisions. But it's just this subtle kind of, oh, you guys, mm, shut up, whatever, you know, uh, let's do something else, stop doing what you're doing, whatever. But not um, some kind of dramatic confrontation that's, you know, him saying, I don't want to live this life anymore and storming away. Nothing like that really happens. The end of the movie, he's still, you know, in that same world. But I liked that there were little nods to the fact that he's still part of this bunch, but maybe has a a, a tiny bit more maturity than than the rest of his friends. Yeah, I mean, and and I think that subtlety in a way... Because I think, I don't know, I may be completely wrong, but I feel like if that film were made now, the chances of it being much more preachy, mm-hmm. probably much higher. Do you know what I mean? I think there is there is something of this sort of 77, 1977 about it in as much as the kind of, um, the sensibility behind it, the way it's, the way it allows things to just be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's quite interesting if you look at it from today, I think. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I don't think you could get away with having characters who are that casually racist, no. sexist, homophobic, no. and not having someone be the voice of reason saying these guys are wrong. And yeah. in this, it's just like they're presenting these people um, and yeah. allowing the audience to draw that conclusion themselves without having this, you know, so, uh, like a narrator throw in, thrown in who's going to uh, say yes. these guys are bad. Yes. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. Because um, it was, I think, I'm, I'm, I don't know, but were there many sort of dance music movies in my mind, certainly? Although in Sri Lanka, we, as I say, we weren't getting a, a hell of a lot of American European movies at mm-hmm. that time. But I can remember, I mean, John Tra- Travolta being like one of the first big names in sort of kind of musical movies, if you know what I mean. Because then he sort of followed it up with Greece. I can't remember there being, yeah, in the 70s, anything as big as that. Mm-hmm. And also... And maybe maybe Hair was, I don't know. Anyway, yeah. yeah. But even even Hair is like a filmed version of a, a stage play. And it's, it's a, oh, a proper so, musical. Yeah. It's people singing songs as part of the story. And this yes. was just, it's, you know, yes. the, the, nobody sings at all in the film. No, it's nobody all, sings. Um, it's the soundtrack that is, you know, music that people are listening to in the movie that um, w- was the big deal. But yes. yeah, I, I don't know if there was ever anything like that around uh, before that time. And like I said, you know, I think Flashdance is a direct descendant of Saturday Night Fever, a bastardized version yes. where it, yes. you know, as I said, they really decided we just need to build a film around this soundtrack and the plot of the film doesn't really matter as much. Yes. But yeah, definitely taking the success of Saturday Night Fever and saying, we want to sell a lot of soundtracks too. How can we do that? <laughs> um, they also, in when Greece came out, did a double feature of... Saturday Night Fever and Grease um, uh, in cinemas. And those two films are in in stark contrast with each other. Um, yeah. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to me, uh, sort of, uh, yeah, Saturday Night Fever, far superior. Definitely. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. Well, and just a, you know, very different beast. It's like... Uh, oh, totally, you know, yes. Stage, I mean, stage so, I mean, Grease is a musical, isn't it? It's a quite yeah. good straight musical. Yeah. Well, that 
is fantastic. I think um, perhaps in the interest of time, we should move along to subject number two, uh, which is The Snow Goose, read oh, by yes. Spike Milliken. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, again, I suppose the impulse was entirely the same. We were, um, again, quite short on literature uh, mm. books and things like that. My mother joined the British Council because you could get fair whack of English literature there. And also there was this audio library and we used to just randomly kind of absolutely ransack that place. And um, and I just came across this. I used to go I used to go and sort of spend at least a couple of hours wading through all this stuff. And, and I came and played it. And of course, that that I don't know what you made of it really but um again as as somebody who was quite young the soundtrack of this is so so sort of overwhelming in, mm-hmm. in many ways you know it's really sort of no holds barred romance i think and then this extraordinary sort of lonely story of this um hunchbacked painter in a lighthouse it sort of seemed seemed like a very very intense and unforgettable kind of thing really um uh, when i was looking for things to talk to you about it, it popped into my head it was very clear saturday night fever and snow goose it all popped into my head but i thought how, where am i going to find this because i had been looking for it for years mm. and then i don't know what what difference sort of i made in the search but it just popped up instantly and there it was in that um sort of youtube clip mm-hmm. i don't know whether you you know yeah same. um yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been looking for this for, for ages. Um, so, yes, I mean, I, I, I used to listen to this. I made recordings of it so I didn't have to lose it when I had had to return the record. And it was it was very important to me. It became really, I don't know, those spaces. I, I Something about the great migrations that they talk about and then you know, all the birds arriving or leaving. Because, again, it seemed like such a different landscape to where I was. Right. I was in the tropics. Uh, I didn't. I didn't see migrations very much, you know. And um, and this whole thing of um, the Essex, Essex coast and stuff. Because my mother, my mother grew up in England, and she would talk to us about England. And I think almost by os- osmosis, we sort of started to kind of picture these landscapes, and and sort of have a sense or an affinity to to these landscapes. And then. Um, to come upon a story that evokes the desolation and the big skies and that, you know, is evokes it in such a sort of a full throttle kind of way. Mm. It was really, um, really wonderful. Yeah. So that's the attachment to that, really. Yeah. And, you know, ha- having all of that imagery being read to you by this amazing voice with yeah. this very lush orchestral score underneath it and just having nice long breaks where it's just music getting little bits of text um and the balance is is really well done isn't Um, it yeah yeah yeah. i mean to be perfectly honest although i used to listen i mean spike milligan narrated a ton of stuff but i had completely forgotten it was him because Mm. i had sort of so come to associate him with sort of comedy and and mm-hmm. you know sort of barbed comedy i was actually genuinely surprised when i realized that I, this, this was this guy reading it mm-hmm. I, and it, it, it rather pleases me because um you know, spike milligan i think is 
was a very special, very special individual. And the fact that because he was dogged by depression and, and stuff in his life. And there's something about that in this story. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, Philip Ryder's sort of existence somehow resonated with him. You know, it really speaks to isolation, doesn't it? in the music and in the story itself. And uh, it, it, that is an, an interesting thing about Spike Milligan is that, um, like you said, the, there's this image that comes into your mind when you hear his name of big, brash comedy. Um, but he also was a part of a lot of very serious things and, you know, wrote books about his life and about the war and... So in some ways, he seems like a very uh, unusual choice to read this, but in some ways he's very fitting. It still makes me wonder what the the genesis of the the project was and and how it came together and and, um, whether it was something that he proposed or, you know, I wasn't able to find anything about the the kind of back. No, no, I I didn't ever find out anything about it. And it, it, it sort of seems like a... One of those really wonderful sort of collaborations that seems to have come out of that time mm-hmm. where people really were making, I think, sort of some extraordinary sort of choices. I mean, I don't know that the sort of um, I don't I don't think I'm romanticizing anything when I think when I say that, it, again, sort of 70s, early 80s, there were there were some so some really interesting ferments, you know, like really interesting cross pollinations of collaborations and things mm-hmm. that were taking place across sort of disciplines, which I don't know. But again, it seems like that that doesn't happen quite in the same way yeah. these days. So, yeah, I mean, this this seemed like for what he was trying to do, I think it's completely successful. Do you know what I mean? In, in, in all aspects, it seems to have come together beautifully. Yeah. And just sometimes making choices when you're putting a project together, uh, finding collaborators who are not the expected choice ends yeah. up, you know, providing you with this really wonderful, special something that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And um, I think it's a kind of a testament to, I don't know if it's necessarily taking a risk to um, have him read the story, but just to try to step outside of the bounds of, of what's expected. Yes. I mean, I think I think these days as well, I, I don't know. I think it might be quite different in America, possibly. But in in Britain, the you know you're not really allowed to be too many different things. Mm-hmm. Um, people get very suspicious of you if you, uh, like for instance, in my profession as an actor, if I if I decide to direct stuff and produce stuff and write stuff and do that with with the same vigor as I do my acting, then there is a there is a I think it, I think it's on the change uh, with people like Phoebe Waller-Bridge and various other people that they're kind of pushing themselves into different disciplines and succeeding at all of them. But in the past, certainly in the recent past, it's, it's always if you're an actor, you you just have to be an actor. And I don't think that when Spike Milligan was doing what he was doing, the world was quite so circumscribed. You know, I think it was much more fluid, just like it is on the continent and possibly in the states. I mean, I don't know whether the East Coast is different to you know California but people people were you know if they were an artist that embraced a lot of things mm-hmm. and you know they, they were sort of refusing sort of to be pigeonholed which which were sort of gingerly and slowly breaking out of now but that that's kind of 
that's kind of the way things are at the moment in Britain. You know, you have to be you have to be easily identifiable and preferably good at one thing. Otherwise, nobody believes that you can do so many di- different things yeah. quite as well. You know, so. Yeah. And I think um, both both here and in London, um, my experience at least is that you're taught that you have to know your brand, and uh, you know if you're going to be an actor in particular that you have to figure out what your lane is and then stick in it yeah. because uh, yes. if yes. if you try to do too many things at once you're spreading yourself too thin and it's so difficult to be an actor and it's so difficult to find work that if you don't know exactly which you know you don't know your place um yes. and and really focus on it uh, you'll never get any work and you're not you, you shouldn't dream too big you, you need to really yes. have realistic ideas of what you're capable of yes yes and that's that's yeah you know um encoded for know your place mm-hmm. um it's it's very very odd but there is a there is a definite kind of negation diminishing sort of some something or the other some something that really, if you're not careful, goes a long way to sort of stultifying what you produce in your life, you know? Right. If you don't sort of battle it and come out the other side, I think everything becomes extraordinarily sort of, perhaps it becomes very marketable, certainly, I don't know, but certainly not as um, not as unexpected and, I don't know, groundbreaking, intriguing mm-hmm. as, 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 as these things, you know, I mean, Snow Goose, there is something about there is something about Spike Milligan doing this this you know, highly romantic story with this crazy old soundtrack, you know, which is just, I don't know, I, I think there's something sublime about it. Um, let me just see how we're doing on time here. <laughs> uh, yeah, we should probably uh, move along to the next topic, which is <laughs> L.A. International Airport. Yes, uh, yeah. As, um, <laughs> as sung by Susan Ray. <laughs> yeah. Now, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, I, I just I just put it in there because, again, this is something that was playing over and over and over and over again. So I'm thinking probably about 1978, 1979. And it was just in Sri Lanka. Airports were still like incredibly glamorous <laughs> um, at that point. And I used to have a special frock or special attire that I would put on for visits to the airport and nowhere else. And they weren't, they were not ordinary dresses. They were really quite fancy. Mm-hmm. So it was that, it was that sort of feeling that, that, you know, just, just visiting the airport was, was a big, big deal. Never mind getting on a plane, never mind flying out. And this song somehow seemed to really, play up to that notion of traveling is so glamorous or air travel is just beyond and and to be an air hostess was oh my god mm. something something really extraordinary you know sort of it was really an aspirational sort of place airports mm. and airplane and there's also i mean listening to this song now there's something so plaintive and so innocent about it as well do you know what i mean because it's I think it, I think the song and the singer sort of somehow bring alive that notion of the wonder of airports. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, even though she's, you know, she's heartbroken and kind of walking away from her lover and 
all of that. So that's why that's why I put that in because it, it's just it's just such a shame, such a loss that we don't feel quite so agog at going to an airport or you know taking a flight. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it sort of seems like like a time of such extraordinary sort of innocence, really. Yeah, and a, a time when flying was both more exclusive and in some ways more accessible, that it was like you could go to the airport, you could walk up to the gate, you could you yes. know, wave yes. goodbye to people as they were actually entering the plane. And all of that stuff, I think, you know, I, I definitely, even from, from my childhood, romanticize um, that kind of <laughs> stuff, even though at the time it was still a pain getting to the airport. The whole, uh, the, the rigmarole of travel wasn't necessarily any less stressful or taxing or, or any of those things, but it was just different. Um, and yes. now it seems like flying, not only is it, you know, there's no glamour involved whatsoever. It's very much just packing as many people onto planes as possible and um, comfort and uh, even just, you know, very basic means of making people feel like they are being looked after. You either have to pay for them uh, or, um, yes. or they're, they're not available at all. Yes. Um, so yeah. yeah, it's it's uh the airline industry I think in the last probably even the last 20 years has changed yeah. significantly probably. Yeah, I mean definitely since uh 9/11 um has changed quite a bit, but yes. um not just in terms of security, but also in terms of trying to make as much money as possible and get as many people onto planes as possible that it's a a much less um relaxing uh, you know it's no, nothing there's nothing romantic about it anymore <laughs> no there's nothing romantic about it anymore and it's, it's also i mean thinking about it you know sort of like airports as spaces you know they're quite remarkable spaces i mean if you go to if you go to sort of like um the other well last year i remember having to pass through uh the middle east and it was dubai airport mm-hmm. we were at and trying mm. to cross Dubai Airport. And I mean, they, they are remarkable spaces, aren't they? They are so sort of vast and open. And I can remember watching these very traditionally dressed Saudi Arabian men, and they seemed to float above this kind of shiny floor. So there was this, these men who looked like sort of walking on this floor that had been finished to an incredibly high shine. And there was like, they were then they got on these travelators. And it was the most incredible sort of, juxtaposition of two time zones you know this this real kind of like high temple to kind of uh futurism if you like Mm -hmm. which i mean airports have always aspired to that i think because travel like that the sort of crossing the last frontier kind of chat you know is that sort of seems to be somehow in the design of an airport people always try to to imbue it with that sense of oh this is the future or this is a vision of no matter how modest the airport is, there is there is that sort of somehow embedded into it. Mm-hmm. And so in the 70s, when these things were still just starting out, my God, it was like, you know, it was like, I don't know, go walking into a big monument that was, I don't know, those messages, I suppose, were much more clear and they really had an impact yeah. that, you know, if you, if you were flying, a, if you were flying in a plane, you were somehow participating in the sort of march to, March to progress, march to, <laughs> you know, the future, a yeah. bold new world, that sort of thing. Yeah. So. 
And the irony of uh, <laughs> this this song uh, being about LAX when that airport <laughs> now is notorious for being one of the most miserable places on earth. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah they uh, also this song was originally yes. released in 1971. It was mm. a, a minor country hit in this country, but not very much of a pop hit. And it was much, much bigger in other parts of the world. Yeah. Um, so that's really interesting, too, that it's this song that's kind of, um, you know, you think of country or uh, pop music that's kind of infused with country sounds as being this very American thing and talking specifically about Los Angeles and about um, LAX seems very American and yeah that the song was not not quite rejected by this country but wasn't you know didn't receive the same amount of attention as it did in other places and yes. like you know what you were saying that you you were imagining uh listening to this song sort of, sort of towards the end of the 70s and it had already you know it came out in 1971 so it definitely stuck around as well as something that, yeah yeah um, I mean yeah lots of things stuck around in Sri Lanka and also 1971 I mean, I must have been listening to this song. I was born in 1971, so I was probably li- I was being marinated <laughs> in this because it was like on a loop in Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. and and also I suppose that that was the other thing is that to us at that time we never made. I didn't know that this was a country and western song when I listened to it again after so many years. I hadn't listened to it until I was looking for stuff for you, and I just thought, oh my God, is a country and western song. <laughs> but to me, it was a song from America, and you know, it was. Um, I, 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 I had no none of those sort of more sort of nuanced ways of identifying what I was actually looking at. You know, it was that it was quintess- in my year, quintessentially American sound. And I mean, it is weird that a country and this this country and Western singer is singing about LAX. You know, it's right. quite yeah. quite mad. But that that was all completely above my head. It was just. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the other fun fact that I pulled from the LA International Airport Wikipedia is mm. that in 1986 it was made the official song of LAX. Oh um, my God, you're kidding so, me! So no, Susan Ray, who had retired at that stage, made a rare public appearance and sang the song so that oh, it could incredible. become the official song of the airport. But yeah. So do they? Do do, do you think they pipe it out? If you go to LA, in LAX, would you, as you're sort of trundling your trolley, would you be played LA International Airport 2 as you make your way to the plane? You know, know how they sometimes, now, now, I don't know whether they have it in, um, in the Heathrow, I think it is, they have these sound installations. Have you seen them? Have you come across them? Mm, where where they, play, they play you sort of like... Um, uh, uh, like soundscapes from various places, and it's actually it's actually really um, it's it's a really great idea where you, you're traveling aro- along and you're seeing a sort of a visual. So there's a huge huge like poster of I don't know Vietnam or whatever, and as you're passing that that image, you have this sort of enormous kind of um, soundscape that envelops you. Uh, which is to do with that country, sort of sounds associated with that country, or a, or a, rec- a field recording of of uh, that the, a city um, 
in Vietnam or, you know, something like that. And I wonder whether there's uh, a similar sort of thing hmm. at LA International Airport in honor yeah. of Susan Ray. I really, I really think she deserves it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I... Just, you know, in terms of American airports, American airports generally, I think, are grimier and more disgusting than airports in other parts of the world. But definitely L.A. and New York, um, both cities excel at just uh, awful. (laughs) Um, So I I have trouble imagining them doing anything special in LAX at all. Yeah, it's a a surprising fact, isn't it? That they just simply don't. There's no decoration of any sort Mm -hmm. to, you know, LaGuardia or JFK or LAX or any. I mean, they are as as door as you come. They're really, really miserable places, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And it's it's quite surprising that because, I mean, you know, they're they're major cities and they're sort of like potentially, you know, airports could be could be made. You know, they they could be real sort of what's the word like mascots of a place, couldn't they? Mm hmm. Like, right. I mean, I mean, like if you go to any, I mean, Portugal, you go to Porto, which is a lesser city, you know, they really take pride in that airport. That's mm-hmm. uh, that's a state of the art airport, you know. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a it's a kind of a mystery why why they don't in America. Yeah. Why it's just I, like a like a bus depot, basically. <laughs> right. I mean, I, th- <laughs> I think to my mind, part of it is that this is not a country that values public services. Um, very no. much any anything that's mm. for uh, to uh, <laughs> to quote a uh, labor slogan anything that is for the many and not the few uh, yeah. is um, you know kind of left by the wayside and it, it's very difficult to convince people in government to spend any extra money to to make things pleasant uh, for you know as as you said it they, the thinking is it's just a means to an end it's a place where people come to to get to other places it doesn't need to be anything fancy and we can just let it kind of fall into decay and not worry about it um but yeah i flew into uh calgary airport um Uh over the summer and the difference it's like it's clean and bright and everything there's so much space and everyone really wants to help you and um all of those things and coming back into jfk and it's just like grim Um, yeah yeah, big cultural differences uh, yeah. and differences yes. in, in perspective on on how these things should should operate and um, who deserves comfort. <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh, do you have any last thoughts on any of these three topics, or um, do you feel satisfied? Um. I, I do. I, I sort of feel satisfied. I mean, they are, they're, they're, I suppose they're sort of mainly kind of um, my attachment to them all is a sort of a nostalgia, really, of, of actually you've, what you've kind of um, forced me to do is sort of re, revisit the kind of lens or, you know, the way I was seeing those things, seeing those sort of, I don't know, kind of cultural products that were very alien to, to, to me, you know, and, and all of those three are quite, quite deeply in the past. So I sort of feel like I, it's, it's, I don't know, perhaps it's selfishly, it's much more kind of an experiential thing that I'm feeling as I'm talking rather than imparting what it is. But it's a, yeah, no, I feel, I feel quite satisfied if you're satisfied. I am extremely satisfied. <laughs> good, good. Um, 
So if people listening to this want to keep up with what you have coming up next, uh, is uh, do, do you post stuff on social media? Do you, I mean, your IMDb, is that, that the best way? Probably IMDb. And um, I don't know, I suppose my agent's website will probably um, have, have everything that's coming up. Um, mm-hmm. I tend not to kind of post stuff on social media very much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think IMDb. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be doing some a lot of filming um, starting quite soon, actually. I think starting in January, and I'll be at that for the next year or so. So, oh, wow. um, so that'll be that'll definitely pop up on on IMDb. I don't think I'll be doing very much theatre while I'm because it's just practically impossible because it's yeah. it's you know so yes that's that's probably the best the best way so thank you so much this was so much fun and um yeah i feel like uh all of these topics we we got good stuff out of all three of them so i'm Great. very pleased oh, thanks Adam. no it's been incredibly good fun thank you all right thank you care. for the chance all right then. bye yay that was so much fun Thanks again to Tusita, and now, everyone's favorite part of the week, recommendations! Yay! So, firstly, my dear friend Christopher Shin, who you will all remember from our discussion about Eyes Wide Shut on episode 29, if you don't remember him from that, then you should go back and listen to it, because it's a good one. Anyway, Chris has adapted Austro-Hungarian playwright Odin von Horvath's play, Judgment Day. And it's just started previews at the Park Avenue Armory in New York. For anyone who hasn't been to that venue, it's gigantic. It's like an airplane hangar. And this production takes full advantage of it. The play is kind of a thriller, kind of a fable, a little bit of political commentary thrown in. It's just brilliant. The whole production is awe-inspiring. The sets are insane. You feel totally immersed in the world of the play while you're watching it. And it's a huge cast and all the actors are phenomenal. I cannot recommend it enough. Go if you have the chance. I also went to a screening of Peter Strickland's most recent film, In Fabric, and he did a little talk back afterwards. The film is totally clinically insane, and I mean that as a compliment. It's kind of a horror movie, and it nods quite heavily to Dario Argento's work, but it's also hysterically funny and totally surreal, but it manages all of that and is still quite serious as well. The tone is so perfect and so unusual. To give a little summary, and this is quite a reductive synopsis, but it's broadly a film about a killer dress. So do with that what you will. I loved it so much. Marianne Jean-Baptiste is in it, and she's fantastic, as is Gwendolyn Christie of Brienne of Tarth fame. And Julian Barrett is in it, if there are any Mighty Boosh fans listening. Anyway, check it out if you like weird, kind of spooky, but funny surrealist cinema. And who doesn't? And lastly, I've finally gotten around to starting the HBO and BBC co-production of his Dark Materials. It's so good! I really love the books, and this feels like a faithful adaptation that's really, really well done, and every British actor in the entire world is in it. So check that out if you haven't already, and that ought to do it. A few last items before I release you for the week. If you're British, please vote tomorrow. It'll be fun. Please vote. Also, I'm going to start a Spark Parade newsletter in 2020, and you can sign up for it right 
now on the website, which is thesparkparade.com, obviously. It'll have tons of exciting weekly news and more information about the subjects we discuss on each episode and tons of fun surprises, so sign up. And lastly, my little GoFundMe fundraising fundraiser is going until the end of the month. Lots of people have donated. Thank you so much to all of you. I've still got a ways to go before I hit my goal, so please consider donating if you've got a little spare holiday cash lying around. It's a great way to support the show and help me to make improvements to the sound quality and accessibility, and you'll help me to attract a wider audience, which in turn means attracting even more amazing guests. Or, if you want to help me in a way that costs nothing, share the GoFundMe link with other people. You can find it all over my social media and on the website. And if you're not following me on social media, why don't you start? I'm at Spark Parade on Instagram and Twitter and even on Facebook too. Wow, right? Okay, let's cut the begging and pleading, shall we? Class is officially dismissed. Be good this week. Take care of yourselves. Until next time. Bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.